This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And today we bring you another installment of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. However... What? However, before there's merriment and frivolity, uh-huh. I have been informed by my co-host, Eric Shaw Quinn, that my notes for this episode, that if he just simply read them aloud, it would fill up our entire allotted time for the podcast. Maybe the so, next two. Yeah. Yeah. I just would like to say that I'm a very methodical note taker, that I don't want to, I, I don't have a mind that's like a steel trap like you, Eric Shaw Quinn. I forget these things. I watch this hour of television and then it just goes I just into make stuff up. <laughs> what happened to the true in true crime the just, eric shaw quinn's not just, true you know, crime i club. just sort of like come up with a new title for things that are always that's mm-hmm. yeah i don't know the, the new steel names trap for thing. people you come up with new names for people you have that in common with uh anne of rice as we call her you guys just rename people john fitzgerald and his name's really john fish it's great it's 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 always more romantic than what they really are right that's how we got true yes. crime TV time. True crime movie time. True crime movie time. True crime movie time is actually next week. What a great segue into what we're actually doing. Right. In these next it really is kind of a cool Shark thing. Point. But yeah, I we I came up with true crime movie time because I couldn't remember what we decided to call it and we liked that better, so we kept it. Absolutely. So here's what we're doing. Uh, true Crime TV Club, we serve up an hour usually of a true crime uh, special. There's no requirement that you watch it. Our goal is to make you feel like you have watched it. We have some of our party people say to us they wish they hadn't watched it and had just listened to us. We don't pay them anything <laughs> to say that. They're just great and supportive. But we are actually going to be covering the same crime in True Crime TV Club this week. Isn't that cool? True Crime Movie time right next week. So we'll get all the uh, dirt. So, we'll get the facts, and then next week we'll see how they adapt it into a movie. Absolutely, true crime movie time is uh, a feature film, a scripted, dramatized feature film inspired by a real life case. So it's different from true and crime by the TV fact Club that we're all we're stuck at home and yeah, absolutely watching movies is you know a form of self preservation. Absolutely. So, Eric, I'm a little tired. Do you just want to start reading my notes aloud and then we can, you know, just wrap up the episode like that? How's that? Well, maybe sound, you could pants? just have some um, uh, chocolate truffles and uh, begin talking like Alvin and the Chipmunks and uh, <laughs> fill up the rest of the, the hour. <sighs> okay. I think since we've gotten all of that out of our systems, we can dive right in here. Okay. Um, to d- little hostility. We talking, are we up to uh, the frivolity part yet? Yeah, the frivolity part's over with. I'm sure you'll bring more frivolity later I'm in the episode. I'm all about frivolity, that's your brand. That's my brand, uh, the, absolutely. The, the, epi- uh, the series we're talking about today is called Ice Cold Killers. 
That's how it's listed on our streaming devices. If you watch the show, the title card will say Alaska Ice Cold Killers, which is weird and confusing. Did you notice that? I did. I just thought, are all of the crimes in this series from Alaska? I don't know if this was this season, if next season is maybe uh, Minnesota in winter. I don't know. They just go to like Denmark. cold climates. <laughs> Vladivostok. Um, uh, it is season one, episode one. I don't actually know where Vladivostok is. In, is. Is it in, I figure all of Russia is can just I, Can I say cold. the episode number? Just so no, no, I'm going to talk go over you. The, um, continue you're going to talk over me about Vladivostok? Uh-huh. Season one, episode one. All right, let's talk about Vladivostok, Eric Shaw Quinn. What are your thoughts on the Russian uh, wintry capital? Actually, I don't, I don't know. Think it's is, the that, is, that from a cold, is that a cold part of Russia? Yes, it is a cold part of oh, Russia. Oh, okay. Well, then that was all I was asking. That was all. So, okay. yes, is, your, is the answer. All right, I have to begin reading my notes aloud now. Is that okay? Just, okay, just would butt you? in. I know that's no problem for you. Uh, 25 miles northeast of Anchorage in the Kinnick River Valley. Uh, it's 1982. Two police officers on their day off discover the partial remains of a woman uh, along with scattered bone, which, which are presumably related to the sort of primary corpse that they discover. Uh, they contact the Alaska State Troopers. And the reason the bones are scattered is because of predation yes which is this is an area with wolves bears it's alaska i mean they they said something like 900 people a year just go missing in alaska like Mm -hmm. they they were talking about like over that hill they said there's just nothing over there for as far as that was terrifying for 800 miles into the bering sea said over those mountains there's nothing they're from there to the Bering guy, Sea. Yeah. And then once you get to the Bering Sea, there's still nothing. Like, it's just yeah. nothing. It's there. It is. He said it's really hard for people in the lower 48 to even imagine how much nothing there is in Alaska. I think it's hard for all of us everywhere to imagine how much nothing there is, period. Like, I, there's a lot of open The space Western on this United States is when I drove out to California. For the first time, it was one of the most astonishing experiences of my life. I, I had mm-hmm. no idea how much nothing there was. I mean, it was beautiful and vast and kind of majestic, but it was nothing. Yeah. So, obviously, Terrifying. that nothing is going to play. And Alaska a major role is in this even case. more. There's yeah. even more nothing up there, which just kind of blew me away. Anyway, so, so the the bones have been hit with predators because that's a big issue in the whatever they call it, the outback or whatever they call it in Alaska. Yeah. Uh, this specific region, I believe, is called the Kinnick River Valley. Um, investigators from the Alaska State Troopers Office arrive and they begin searching the scene. After hours of this, they find a shell casing for a single bullet, a, tw- a two twenty three caliber used in high-powered rifles. Never heard of that before. They also find handcuffs and ace bandages in the remains, which suggests the victim was bound and blindfolded, and if you include the bullet, executed. Yikes. Yeah. The autopsy determines that the cause of death was actually three gunshot wounds. Dental records identify the victim as Sherry Morrow, a dancer at the Wild Cherry Bar on what is described as the seamy side of Anchorage, Alaska. As opposed to the very fashionable side of Anchorage, Alaska. (laughs) As opposed to North Anchorage. Um... Uh, this is the 80s. People are being drawn to Alaska because of the transatlantic. Is that right? The transatlantic pipeline? Or did I write that down wrong? The trans-Alaska pipeline. Trans-Alaska, it must have been. Because yeah. there's no Atlantic anywhere near 
um, Alaska. Um, but yeah, that yes. was a big deal. That was uh, people. I remember they paid people enormous amounts of money to work on it because they were going to a place where there was just nothing, and so everything mm-hmm. was unbelievably expensive, and it was like the gold rush. People mm-hmm. went up there to make their fortunes providing what those people needed because they would pay top dollar for it and they had top dollar mm-hmm. because there was nothing there because there was so much yeah. nothing going on. Except for a lot of flowing oil money, as the narration informs yes. us. So you're getting uh, what they describe as roughnecks, which I believe is shorthand term for oil industry kind of pipe workers. Yeah, and the people who actually and- are doing the drilling. Yeah. Uh, And there's something going on in Anchorage at the time that they call the triangle trade. And this may still be going on, but this is where um, pimps, for lack of a better word, are running sex workers up the West Coast to Alaska and then to Hawaii. And so there is this sort of shifting trade of sex workers who relocate and are very transient and they don't settle in an individual place for the long time, but they're, they're catering to the various markets for their trade. Yeah. I would have to say you probably, we would be hard pressed to have anybody work, particularly working in that field, stay in Alaska for a protracted period of time. So you could work three months in Alaska and then three months in Hawaii, Mm -hmm. you know, you might be able to keep, because otherwise they just quit. It just looked miserable. Yeah. Uh, the police start to go through other missing persons reports for women who have been working Fourth Avenue, and there are many. Uh, but Morrow's death is forcing investigators to take a fresh look at a lot of cases that were considered cold and a lot of cases that were dismissed because of what we just described, the sense that a lot of the women in town were itinerant. If they went missing or a roommate reported them missing, they probably just moved on. They didn't have very deep roots. Right. All that sort of stuff. Uh, Two years before Sherry Mora was found, construction workers in that same area discovered the partial remains of a woman in a shallow grave. A very similar scene. uh, Predation had scattered the bones and whatnot. Um, This corpse, they were never able to make an ID on. So they turned to a forensic artist who took what they preserved of the skull and shaped a clay mold based on the skull structure which produced something close to a likeness of the victim. And the victim came to be known as a Klutna Annie. And a Klutna is, I think, a name of a, of a geographical point in the area close to where she, her remains were discovered. Right. At the scene, another empty cartridge from a two twenty three rifle. So a strong connection between yeah. these two. Uh, yeah, it starts scenes. to be, it begins, they start to see the very beginnings of what might be a pattern. And so Sherry's co-workers are then interviewed by the police, and they say she was approached by a stranger the night she went missing, and this man offered to pay her $300 to pose for photos. But they've got no name or further information about this mystery man. They just know, and it's not actually the night she was missing, it was the last night she was seen alive. The night that she was no longer seen again, she was supposed to meet the man, uh, and that's when her roommate reported her missing because she did not return. Over the past several years, there were five unsolved missing persons cases involving topless dancers, right? So they're looking at these cold cases and they're narrowing down some of the trend lines. Five of them were topless dancers working at the same club where uh, Sherry worked. Uh, Again, the cases were dismissed because they were considered transient, but now the Anchorage PD is looking at them with new eyes. Um, They re-questioned all the co-workers of these women 
and a description begins to emerge of the same man, a red-haired man in his 40s who'd been frequenting the clubs. Um, they look, this is where the narration tossed out one of those facts where I was like, wow, were they really able to do this? They investigate all of the men in the missing women's lives. And I'm like, that's going to be a lot of men. <laughs> That's five missing women over the past several years. Were they able to find all those men, you think? I, you know, I have to say I'm not even sure that there were that many people there. So mm -hmm. there may have been a smaller number, but I think they were talking about men to whom they were specifically connected. Boyfriends, right. business associates, that those kinds of people, as opposed to all of their Johns and... Mm -hmm. people who stuck a dollar in their underwear. You know what I mean? I, I don't think yeah, they meant right. that. But I think that they meant the obvious suspects. You know, they always say, it's always, always, always the husband or the boyfriend or the whatever. So right. I think they were able to rule out the the immediate um, connections for the women as being uh, guilty of their disappearance. Okay, that makes sense. That was my take on it. I don't think they meant all the men. A third body is found in the same area. Uh, she is identified as Joanne Messina. She's a cannery worker who was last seen leaving the dock with her dog. And she was in the company of a redhead man, similar to the one that Sherry's friends and co-workers have described her engaging with before her disappearance. Joanne has been shot. Um, but this is with a twenty two and yeah. not a hunting rifle like the others. So... Is it connected? Is it not connected? They're not. Yeah, sure. I always thought that one was really a red herring. I thought that was really a strange detail. And, you know, right. it's kind of aberrant. Uh, but her body has also been badly ravaged by bears. Was, um, was she also again. bound? Where there's there evidence that she'd been blindfolded and bound, or like I just I always I yeah. when I was watching it I was like is this and I don't think they ever really accounted for it, but and maybe we'll get her back around to it, but I didn't really feel like she was part of it. And I think that happens, right? And I think we're going to get to how many cases this ultimately touched on, but it yeah. can often touch on cases that are not. I mean, it's something that we've talked about a yeah. lot. With I mean, there's more than the one red-haired man, case. but she's, right. she doesn't and, really fit the rest of the profile. And we talk about it some with our discussion of the Billy Newton case, you know, because we've got an eyewitness statement saying that uh, Billy was seen leaving a club in West Hollywood with Jeffrey Dahmer. And we talk about any cop who had an unsolved gay murder in America in that time was like, did Dahmer kill my guy? Right. You know, so this happens a lot. Um, the FBI profilers enter the picture, and they're looking at um, the evidence that's been collected so far, and they're looking at the blindfold evidence that was found, I think, from Sherry's case. And they make an interesting, if somewhat nauseating, uh, comparison between the fact that there is blindfold evidence and there is no gag evidence at all no evidence that the victims were right. muffled or gagged and they say that whoever this killer is he wanted them disoriented and he wanted them terrified but he wanted to hear their screams and because in alaska no one can hear you scream uh, specifically in the area where these bodies were found yes. i mean it is incredibly remote, remote. And now the story takes on a whole new level. Nine months after the discovery of Sherry Moore, a truck driver on his way to work slams on the brakes because a woman has run into the middle of the road, flagging him down for help. Ooh. 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So we are now nine months after the discovery of Sherry Moore, the victim whose remains started this episode about this crime, at least. And a truck driver on his way to work slams on the brakes as a woman runs out into the middle of the road, flagging him down. At this same instance, the driver sees a shadowy figure with a gun duck away from this uh, street corner right as the woman rushes the cab and begs for the truck driver's And I got to say, as bad as everything uh, this woman's life was and this moment and everything, this is the luckiest woman in Alaska. I'm going to tell you, basically, especially considering what we're going to discover. She's got handcuffs on. He wants to take her to the police, but she doesn't want to go to the police. She says, take me to a motel, which was a detail that I was like, had to wrap my head around, but as we're going to come to discover, she was in fact a sex worker and was probably afraid of how the police were going to treat her. He does take her to a motel, but the truck driver is so freaked out, he says, I got to let the police know about this girl. Yeah. He calls the cops. They come to the motel. They question her. She tells the officers she is a topless dancer, that she got propositioned. She was working a street corner as a prostitute. She got propositioned by this guy. And uh, she got in his car with him. They were going to have sex. Once inside the car, he pulled a gun on her. He handcuffed her. And he took her to a house in the middle-class neighborhood of Muldoon. He held her hostage in a basement full of mounted heads of animals, sort of like trophy kills, trophy hunt kills, and brutalized her for hours. And I'm just going to say, this was a first for us here at True Crime TV Club. I felt the reenactment of this the way the camera did a slow pan of her exposed midriff was gross. <laughs> Actually thought it was sort of over the line and <laughs> really reminded me of the commentary in I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Karen Kilgara from My Favorite Murder uh, of how these true crime shows used to be, which was super sort of like man-focused and women in negligees getting, you know, violated. Lurid. Or stuff. Lurid. This was really, and it was just a moment. It wasn't the whole special, but I was like, if they span, like, because she's a teenager. She's, as we're going to discover, she's 17 years old. Right. I don't know if the actor playing, but I was like, if you show that girl's exposed midriff in close up one more time, I'm going to talk about it on my podcast. And here I am doing just that. And here they did. Um, yeah. yeah. I. It is one of the, like, one of my least favorite things about cop shows is like, I really think they ought to give out special awards to cop shows that do not include strip clubs. Like, (laughs) I am so sick of the scene in the cop show where they go to the strip club. I'm just sick of it. Like, go look at tits on your own time. I want to be (laughs) left out of this. 
I'm sure there are a lot of women who feel the same way and a lot I'm of other gay men. I'm just sick of it. I am just yeah. sick of the amount but, of t- footage on cop shows and cop movies that include people. They'll go and have meetings there where they're drinking coffee right. and talking about something else. It's like, so go to a diner or a nice restaurant or somebody's apartment. I Stop going to strip clubs. I'm just, it's just an excuse to show women's tits. I just am yeah. sick of it. <laughs> yes, exactly. I just hear here of it, and this hear, is a show about it. So, but, yeah, there's right. no escaping I mean, this is, it. It's now. actually pivotal is, to the case. This the victims are being targeted at a strip around. club, yeah, so right. you can't really okay. escape it here. But still, a little lurid. Okay, so uh, this young woman, who uh, you know, red flag for later, is never named in the course of this episode. Correct. That's it. I don't think they ever named her. I but, don't think um, so. For, Okay. Uh, The man who's held her hostage uh, says to her, I'm going to fly you to my cabin in the woods and I'll release you if if you cooperate. Excuse me. Reading too literally from my own notes here. He brings her to an airstrip, which is some brass ones for a serial killer. I'll tell you. I got to tell you, like what an isolated part of the world. And he shoves her into a little Cessna airplane puts her in the back, and he begins loading supplies. When he turns his back, she makes her escape she and runs fucking runs for it. I yeah. am telling you, that's this woman had a good sense of survival because, yeah, I mean, I always say, like, if somebody came up to me in a public place with a gun and said, get in the car, and I was like, yeah, so you could take me someplace private to shoot me? No, you shoot me no. here in front of everybody. Absolutely. You know, where, hey, I might get what... medical and they'll catch you. Like, she was aware of that. If he takes me to someplace isolated, mm-hmm. I'm dead. Yeah. And so I'll she let ran you go. Bullshit. Yeah. Where, where yeah. are you going to let me go? Into Bearville, where yeah. I, I have no food and I freeze to death? Fuck off. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And yes, that's also what the cops say. Do not ever, ever, ever get in the car. Do not ever go yeah. with the Shoot abductor. Because I'm not because... going with you. Yeah. No, yeah. not doing it. Um, the investigators take her to the airstrip, which is called Merrill Field, and she identifies the plane. She says, that is the plane the guy put me in. Uh, they run the registration on the plane, and they find it belongs to a gentleman named Robert Hansen. So they track him down, and they question him, and he is just outraged. He says, that woman is trying to extort money from me. Uh, none of this really happened. And then he asks police, is it even possible to rape a prostitute? That's charming. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, and also, like, I'm a serial killer printed in a giant, you know, I think. text on the front of his T-shirt. But he says he has an alibi. He spent the evening with two friends of his because his wife and children were on vacation in Europe, and they played cards together. The cops tracked down these two men. They substantiate his story. Uh, he also allows the police to search his home. And they don't find the animal heads that the young abductee described as being in his basement. The young woman also refuses to take a polygraph. And so they basically dismiss her story. They say it doesn't hold up. We don't have evidence that that matches uh, her account to the guy's home. Um, I don't know. I guess they feel they can't prove anything about the plane, whatever. It's all circumstantial, you know. At the time, there was no sexual assault protocol. They decide not to believe her. They just didn't believe her. I mean, this is, yeah, yeah. we're living in the legacy of an era like this yes. now. Um, yeah, this is uh, what, 19, when is this? 1983? 82 or 83. Let's see. Nine months like after 1982. So possibly we're in 1983. <laughs> um, okay. 
at the time, there was no sexual assault protocol, so she wasn't examined. The rape claim was not investigated in any way that it would be investigated today. And so citing a lack of evidence, the prosecutor drops the case. Three months later, another partially decomposed woman is found in the same remote area of Alaska. She is also a missing dancer. Uh, police also find a makeshift blindfold among the remains. Police also re discover that the victim has been shot by a 223 caliber bullet. At this point, the FBI gets heavily involved and they turn the case over to the Behavioral Science Unit, made famous by Clarice Starling in Silence of the Lambs. She worked for BSU in that film and book. And the investigators begin to develop a profile of their unknown subject. Um, and they are surprised that he has not left shell casings behind because that doesn't fit the profile. Everything else about what this guy is doing, and they assume it's a guy, indicates methodical planning, a lot of confidence, but they think this, in fact, may be an outgrowth of his narcissism. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, it's like a signature. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I thought it was a strange choice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, let's see. I completely fucked up my notes. <laughs> I was realizing I was because reading from one page to, to me, the other. Well, it would seem to me, the reason it seemed strange to me was that um, it, um, like, I, I, and I, I'm not the gun expert, but it would seem to me that the, the casing that they were finding, the shell casing, would not be near the victim. Right. That when you fire the rifle, the shell casing falls on the ground, but the person that you're shooting it could be a long distance away from you. Mm -hmm. And so he would have to pick up the shell casing and take it with him and dispose of it with the body mm -hmm. on site. It wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily be, so it really was intentional. It was not, yeah. it wasn't It was like a signature. A, yeah, it was, it was very much a signature, which I thought was an odd choice for him. Yeah. Well, and so let's talk about him, now that I've actually straightened my notes up a bit. Uh, Robert <laughs> Hansen was raised by strict parents and had a difficult childhood. He and was naturally left-handed. And, sure, yeah. uh, and I guess red-headed. They never really said that, but like... Yeah, uh, the, the, if they did, I missed it. But the, like everybody has identified the the women being... Saying that all these women were with a red-headed man, and they never really said... That right. Hansen was redheaded, but I assume that. Yeah, that's a good point. They didn't say that. I kept waiting because that would have been a pretty big connection to the yeah, previous I mean, accounts. It's it is it is fairly rare. Genders yeah. are uh, not the most common among us. No, anyway. they are not. He he was also left-handed, and his family, which we are treated to through a series of brutal reenactments, Ugh. abusively forces him to use his right hand. Uh, shouting, hyper, hyper religious household. He had very low self-esteem. Anytime he had free time, he was expected to be working in the family bakery. Uh, he was considered small for his age. He had few friends. He also had terrible acne as a young Where person. Where was he from? Did you pick that up? I like, couldn't really tell. Like, it wasn't Alaska. Was, he moved to yeah. Alaska, they said. But I wasn't sure where from because I, I, did, I wasn't so sure So the either. successful bakery he was running in Alaska was not his family's bakery. He started his own. Right. He started his own bakery because he was well-versed in the business. Yeah, they didn't start giving locations and geographical sort of 
waypoints for his past until he enters the military. They say he enlisted in the Army Reserve at Fort Dix. He later became a military police officer at Fort Knox. What is in Fort Knox? Well, that used to be the Gold Reserve. Is that what it is? It's the Gold Reserve? I'm I was yeah. like, I, I, you just hear about it like as secure as Fort well, Knox. And because I'm like, I don't it was, know what's in there. Because it was the, the American currency used to be based on gold gold standard okay. and so there was an enormous i guess there still is amount of gold there that is protected by the military because it ensures the stability of american or it did ensure the stability mm-hmm. of american currency i don't think it's still i don't think that's still a thing there would have to be you know an entire state made out of gold or something for that to be the yeah. case anymore but um but at the time, so that's, so yes, as secure as Fort Knox means that they could keep the gold there for the gold standard. But Got I don't it. know that it's still, I think it's still secure because I think there's still gold there. But I, I don't think that it's as important as it once was. I, you know, I could have Googled it, but it's always more amusing if you ask Eric Jacquin, or usually it is. That was a pretty straightforward answer. I didn't get any. Yeah, I'm sorry. That wasn't a very fun yeah. answer. Yeah. But yeah, Fort Dix time. is in New Jersey. So maybe he's from New Jersey. Maybe. Um, while enlisted, he's known to frequent prostitutes and he found, I don't, and this is the narration is giving us this in summary. So I don't know who their sources are for this, but he said, finds the quick romps unsatisfying. He did tell fellow soldiers that he yearned to take control of the situation. He also serves time for arson and theft, which is sort of glanced over. I'm like, arson is kind of a, a big crime. I, I thought there so. Might have been more yeah. Of a story. Like, yeah. wow, that's a little, and kind of a disturbed personality type. Yeah. And um, in 1967, he gets married because with that resume, who would turn you down? Right. Uh, he moves to guy. Alaska. He has two children. He's considered an upstanding member of the community. Uh, the investigators who were interviewed in the special say at this time, the knowledge of serial killers was incredibly limited. And so just the fact that he was an upstanding member of the community might have led them to dismiss him as a suspect because he wasn't a stark raving lunatic stalking through the woods with wild hair. I mean, I don't know who they were going off of. In, 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 yeah, in that I, it early, was a know. different era in crime. It was, a, it was yeah. a very different sort of time period. We have a much more sort of scientific approach to... Uh, to crime solving today than we did in the 70s and 80s and the time periods that we're uh, we've been looking at a lot recently. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was sort of the wild west of of uh, criminality and serial killering. Absolutely. So the one detail of Hansen that really leaps out, he's a hunter. And everyone in town knew that he had taken out a doll sheep with a crossbow. And they He's show an award-winning hunter. He's an a noted hunter. award-winning trophy really, hunter. Yeah, yes. Yeah. He had four animal kills entered into a renowned world trophy, world trophy hunting book. Didn't expect that to become a tongue twister. They interview his neighbor, Larry, who used to hunt with him and said he was always trying to up... His hunting game. That's Larry Bivens. Uh, he I also liked says, Larry. Yeah. Larry he had was a like, really sort of like, yeah. Yeah, like it was, this was kind of a funny interview with Larry. He thought he was, yeah, he was, you know, he was kind of, <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, Larry, this is about a serial killer. I like Larry, and he was like handler in this. Yeah. yeah, like he found he found great humor in this uh, description of his kind of wacky neighbor. You know how he was sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it was. And I was like, yeah, this, we apparently so. 
the story that Larry tells is is an odd one because he says that when they were out hunting together, Larry began to talk about women in very sort of coarse terms, and Hanson became furious with Larry for t- for speaking so you know denigratingly about the opposite sex. So I don't know if that's foreshadowing or not. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. So we go back to an interview with the FBI profiler whose name uh, is, I want to get his name because he was actually pretty, Roy Hazelwood. I think he's sort of a name in the, in the, in the uh, field of true crime uh, analysis and research. Roy and Hazelwood, he says, what an excellent name. Uh, I know. He says a sexual sadist is the least common type of serial killer. What's the most common? Like, do I even want to know? I was really taken with that. It would seem like that would seem like the the biggest attraction for serial killing would be sexual sadism. But what do I know? I'm a podcaster. Um, I, I know. and a writer. I you know don't look at me. But um, yeah, what's the most common? I I can't jaywalkers. I, I just I. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. What would be your motivation for being a serial killer? I misogynists. But is this because this is the type we see more often depicted on film and television? No. You know that it's like all about sexual sorry. control. <laughs> misogynists, yeah. not misogynists. Misogynists. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, we we clearly don't have an answer to this question. No, because <laughs> we don't know. But if you know. Go to the Dinner Party Show's Facebook page and let us know because it is an odd one. Um, authorities threatened to press charges against... Uh, the, oh, no, this is it. Okay. Wow, my notes for this episode just suck. They're long and they're not very good. Um, <laughs> they're long, but they're terrible. So they're not really... Even though they don't have the evidence to prosecute Hansen, the local investigators have not really given up on Hansen. They just think he's too weird, all right? So they start to really narrow in on his alibi because that's kind of the biggest thing he was able to right. use. The The basement wasn't full of trophy heads. Uh, okay, like maybe he moved them or put them somewhere else, you know. Um, but so the authorities really uh, dig into his alibi. that was detail. Yeah, it was an odd detail, and it was one they didn't come back to. I and think they this didn't is one really of those come back to cases it. that could have used more than an hour. Is kind of yeah, what I was thinking. I but. think so. Okay, so they circle back with the two men who provided him his alibi, and they eventually um, they break down and they admit that they were lying. That Hanson told him that he needed their help because this hooker was trying to that's a quote uh, exploit him and get money out of him, and none of this had really happened. And they think, well, shit. Uh, so they begin tailing him and they follow him to work uh, where he's working at the bakery that I, I think think he owns. 
uh, they finally bring him into the police station for questioning. I think so. It's and called Hanson's Bakery, so I'm guessing it's probably his. What it's a cool his name is if he Roy bought Hansen. it from a Hanson and was like, it oh, my really God. It really would be. Like, I might as well. It's Kismet. This is the bakery yeah. I should buy. <laughs> it's got my name on it. It's already got my <laughs> name on it. Yeah. I'm thinking okay, it we got to find your humor where you can in a case like this. Right? Um, so Hanson is completely agreeable with the cops and agrees to be questioned and doesn't bring his lawyer in and is, is just, I didn't do this and this is, you know, ridiculous and this has nothing to do with me. Uh, while they're questioning him, they serve a search <laughs> warrant on his house. And in the attic rafters, the search is pretty extensive and they're not initially turning up anything, but in the attic rafters, rafters excuse me, they discovered a hollowed out cache full of jewelry and a stash of trophies, jewelry earrings, things like that. Right. And then ID cards belonging to the victims and also newspaper clippings about And a the neon case. sign that said, yeah. this guy is a serial killer. Um, right. And like, P.S. There is a map with specific locations marked off that match up with the locations where the bodies and the partial remains were found. Like, Jesus. <sighs> yeah. So and, basically this is... Uh, oh, and yeah, um, the most critical find, remember the two twenty three caliber mini rifle cartridges that were found with many of the bodies? He's got one. He's got And he's it's got hidden a rifle. with the other stuff in Absolutely. the insulation, in the attic. It was like, well, and then there's a detailed novel that he's written about his, my life as a serial killer, it's called, um, right. describing so, all the crimes in detail. I mean, it was like... The find of the century. It was a gold strike for the the investigators. And then on top of that, they send the rifle to the crime lab and the strike marks match the cartridges that were found with the murders. Uh, He claims he's innocent, but he's charged with murder, assault and kidnapping. And then in exchange for a full confession, the DA agrees to charge him with only four murders because now the lens is expanding. Now they're thinking, you know, there are more than the just the five missing topless right. dancers. How many missing female cases out of Anchorage are connected or connect a bull to Hanson? Uh, he reveals, and now we get his side of the story, which explains to some degree the different nature of uh, different natures and how the remains were found. Okay, so he says that. Remember uh, Elukna Annie, whose name I'm doomed to mispronounce, the unidentified victim? He said he drove her to a remote place uh, and shot her. He said he never knew her real name. As for Sherry Morrow, the first victim, the victim we opened with, he handcuffed and blindfolded her in his car. Then he drove to the same area, and he claims that as he took her out of the car, she charged him, and he shot her for that reason. Um, They then think that after that, his methods of killing began to evolve. He stopped driving his victims to remote areas and he started flying them in his plane to his cabin where he would keep them for a long time, which was apparently his plan with the young woman who flagged the truck driver down. He said, I'm going to keep you in my cabin. He lied and said he'd let her go, but he would keep his victims there and then he would set them loose and he would hunt them like animals. Which suggests that might be why he was leaving the cartridges, as you pointed out. I hunted this person. This is. A I guess so. Film. It was like a. Yeah. It was like signing his work. I. I guess I, just, nuts. Just okay. Really whack job. 
And here is the deal. Here is the detail that just chilled me to the bone. Yeah, I had never heard this. I knew some about this case, and I realized without realizing it, I had I had based a killer in my novel, um, Blood Echo, after Hanson, just from knowing some details of the case. Not there were not trophies from every victim in the cache they found in his attic, and that's because he had given some to his wife and daughter as gifts, so that he could see them. Without having to go get up and root through his stash upstairs, mm-hmm. he could see the trophies around his wife and daughter's neck. Yeah. Or dangling from their ears. Just the yeah. worst. This guy was, I mean, this and is one admits, of the worst, most brutal, most. Yeah, just disgusting. I, just yeah. completely devoid of any sort of humanity. What a monster. And he said, what excited him was the torture and the hunt, that the killing itself was anticlimactic. Climactic, excuse me. And all told, it was a 12-year killing spree, and in the end, he confessed to 17 killings. He identified 15 grave sites, but only seven bodies were recovered, as of this special. That's the type of thing that changes even up till recently. They find new yeah, bodies. Yeah, they're probably or, you know, still DNA making discoveries in this kind of case. And, and he was oh. sentenced to... A hundred, four hundred and sixty-one years in prison plus life with no possibility wow. of parole. So, like, yeah, see ya. Yeah, I just that was it. Yeah, yeah. So I, we re, we always reach this point. We get to the end of the notes, and it's like, what insight are we gonna? You know, like how? What's our take here? I mean, this is. Is it, it's not the worst one we've ever done, but it's probably the most uh, cold-blooded killer we've ever talked about on True Crime TV Club. Just really a monster. And the, one of the things that stuck out for me was the, um, the, the nature of the investigation process in the time period. Mm-hmm. It really did, like, a lot of the choices that were made and a lot of the way that things went um, with this case had to do with where we were in history, in, in our own history as a country. I mean, that place, the remoteness of Alaska, the fact that the, um, that the Trans-Alaska Pipeline was being built and it had drawn all of those roughnecks up there with all that money and, you know, and so the sex trade moving there in the way that it did um, and those disposable people that he targeted um, mm-hmm. who were not really well followed up. The fact that somebody could be found by a citizen, handcuffed, partially clothed, running through the streets, clearly having been savaged, and eh, the case just didn't come together, so never mind. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can't, I kind of can't imagine that happening today. It wouldn't. It would be all over social media, and people would be rightly outraged and talking about it. It wouldn't go yeah. away. And good, yeah. good. You know, but right. But I mean, I, that's what I mean about historically seeing this in in time. Like when we were talking, when we were reviewing the uh, "I'll Be Gone in the Dark" case in and around mm-hmm. um, the Michelle McNamara special on HBO, they were talking about rape being like a ninety day, you know, like a parking yeah. offense or something, like not a very big crime. Like no, yeah, like d- public drunk or something. I, I just I was. It really does move you through history as you look back at these crimes and you see how we have progressed moving through our own, not just the investigative right. techniques, but also 
the just the sort of general legal standards of the time period. I, I also right, and getting to the point you made about viewing the victims as disposable, I think there's something that Roy Hazelwood, the FBI profiler, says is that you know there was a lot of kind of baroque. Uh, philosophizing about Hansen's motives, right? He picked sex workers because he saw them as fallen women, and he had this very devout religious wife. Hazelwood right. kind of puts a puts a hole through that, and I think it may be accurate. Is he picked sex workers because they were seen as disposable? He yeah. he picked a uh, for he he called his victims from a group of women that he didn't think a lot of people were going to be looking for. And, and he was and behold, right. He was right. They were considered transient. And, people you didn't know, really follow a group up. of women who for three hundred dollars would get in his car. Right. I mean, it's the 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 elaborate. It's not to diminish their crimes in any respect, but there there comes a point at which the explanations for their motives become a little narrative and a little cinematic, if you will. I like uh, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, right? Who, thank God, is no longer with us. Yes. Uh, he basically he made statements after he was caught and imprisoned, saying that we are we are killers of opportunity. That if we want to get to somebody, we we basically We'll get him, but we we usually travel the path of least resistance. We want to, you know. He didn't say it with quite that self awareness. Yeah, the Green River Killer is the same situation. Yeah. The 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 um, the I don't know the Burger King Killer. I can't ever remember what the but the the it's BLT. What's it? The oh oh, oh <laughs> BTK. I'm sorry, BTK. I should laugh. Not the Burger King. But it's, it King reminds killer. me of that. Yeah, the BTK. It's like, it who sounds is like the Burger King killer. I love Burger King. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. No, it wasn't a Burger King killer, but it was the the initials. Reminds me of Bur- always makes me think of the initials or something at Burger King. Anyway. Um, yeah. BTK yeah. stands for bind, torture, and kill. Yeah. Yeah, but like all of those were people. They chose their victims based on their availability. Yes. Right. BTK More was killing people like in his neighborhood. Deep he psychological. Yeah. Um, profile. It was just this was who showed up. So that's who he killed. Yeah. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. But I also think it's important to to scrub away some of the more um, cinematic embellishments of these cases and look at what the reality is, if only because that makes people more prepared to actually spot predators. But speaking of cinematic. But cinematically, I was going to say there there we are. We're going to um, next week in our next episode in a new special, a new series we're doing called True Crime Movie Time here at Christopher and Eric. Uh, we are going to break down a uh, feature film inspired by these crimes, starring Nicolas Cage, John Cusack, and Vanessa Hudgens. It's called The Frozen Ground. Um, side note about this movie: came out in I think 2013. Didn't get a big theatrical release. Was largely forgotten. They put it on Netflix earlier this year, here in 2020, and it entered the top 10 on Netflix for like a week. And this is a new thing that's happening for movies that got totally sort of sidelined and forgotten. They end up on Netflix and then they get discovered and suddenly in they're, they're in the top Because people can 10. find them. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to find stuff. Like it, it really is. Kind of, and it's Nicolas Cage and Vanessa Hudgens and John yeah. Cusack. And I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's not a slow leak kind of film. So it's, yeah. And it will be interesting to see how they take the details of this case mm-hmm. and turn them into a movie. Cause sometimes like, you know, they'll be true to the story. And sometimes it's like, well, it's based on a true crime. And the, the story is, well, it's a murderer in Alaska. And then the resemblance right. ends the diverge. So I'll be interested to see how they take the details 
that we've learned in this case and turn them into a movie because right uh, sometimes the you know sometimes they lend themselves immediately and sometimes you need to do a little um beauty work to make yes. it work more as a, as a film. And so and uh, in episode 55 of our podcast, we did this for the first time with a movie called King Cobra, which we did a little dive on and discovered they had taken some pretty big liberties with the facts of the case as they made the I'm, film, eliminated whole major players from it that they didn't want I'm to talk about. You. Yeah. So it was ridiculous. We'll see. We'll see. That's the frozen ground. And it's still on Netflix as of this recording, if you do want to watch it before we talk about it. Although that, as we always say, is certainly not a requirement because we serve it up. We will pick it to death next week on this podcast. Absolutely every detail. We will chew over every little detail of this. You will feel like you have seen the movie and be sick of it and never want to see it again by the time we get through (laughs) having at it. Uh, Yes. Well... Until then, and forever after, I am Christopher Rice. And I am Eric Shaw Gwen. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.